Good morning. So uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, let me just say again, uh, you have overwhelmed me with all of your thoughtful generosity, the meals. I know that Tom said in his time here he gained about 15 pounds. I think I've already gained about 15 pounds. So thank you so much for making me feel so welcome. Uh, even before I got here, there were notes and emails, and I'm, I'm still catching up on those, so bear with me. But thank you all so much for making me feel so welcome and, and so loved. Um, let me take you back um, a few years ago, actually quite a few years ago, uh, to when I was about eight years old. So if you were to have walked into my bedroom whenever I was eight years old, the first thing that you would have noticed were all kinds of trophies. You have seen trophies for, um, for football, basketball, baseball, wrestling, track. Uh, you would have seen some letters. You, you would have, it, it was an impressive thing to see um, because they were all arrayed right there on my shelf. Now, here's the thing. They, they weren't my trophies. <laughs> so uh, my brother had my room before me. And he actually moved out when I was around four years old. He's 14 years older than me, and um, he, he went off to college. So I had, but, but you know what? The trophies were so impressive, I decided to just leave them there. <laughs> Friends would come over, and they'd see those trophies. I'm like, yeah. They were high enough they couldn't read the name on that little placard in the front, you know? It wasn't even the school that I went to. But that was okay. Now, let's drop down two shelves. And there were Chad's trophies. They weren't nearly as impressive. There were three, okay? One was for T-ball. I played, yeah, I played for Clark Truck Parts. We actually came in first that season. I played deep right field. The only thing I caught out there were bugs. <laughs> there was another trophy for soccer. Now, if you looked really close at the little placard on the soccer trophy, it had this big word that started with a P, participation. <laughs> Did anybody ever get a participation trophy? I think I was on that leading edge of the kids that all got trophies. So I got my participation. Now, between those two, there was a squirrel's tail there. I'm counting that as a trophy. The first squirrel I shot, I blipped the, the tail there. And, uh, but then there was a trophy for, of all things, spelling. Yeah. I won the school spelling bee right here. Any, any spellers out there? Yeah? Right, raise your hands proud, spellers. <laughs> so, um, big difference between my trophies and my brother's trophies. And needless to say, my brother and I, um, we're very different, which is fine. But you see, growing up, I started to see these advantages to being a jock. You know, there were pictures, in the big pictures in the paper. Name in the paper. Lots of attention. You know, the, the guys in church would come up and say, well, you know, how, how did that play go last week? Or, or, or this or that. And, you know, he wasn't just a jock. He was like a quintessential jock. I mean, uh, quarterback of the football team, they used his silhouette on the cover of the yearbook. Um, and and, and I, all that was so different than me. So, you know, you, you start maybe feeling a little inferior in some ways, because I, I thought, well, I don't really measure up to that. But the, then as I've gotten older, I've gotten to hear from the other side. Um, P 
people that maybe were excellent in athletics but really, really struggled in the classroom. And I've heard them talk about the opportunities they felt like they missed, uh, scholarships, not doing well in college, um, struggling in that way. And the truth is, if we start looking around, oftentimes we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. As a matter of fact, you may be here this morning, and when you come to church, you start looking around thinking, wow, man, why do their kids seem so much more well-adjusted than mine? Why do they praise so much better than I do? Why do they have so much more than me? The better car. Maybe there's groups here that you feel like you can't get into because of one of those reasons. And yet, when I get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it states that it was he who gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. You see, part of God's plan is for diversity. Part of God's plan is that we are different. And yet that presents its challenges, doesn't it? Because how do we move forward together in unity in the midst of so much diversity? Last week we took a look at some necessary ingredients in moving forward together. And we saw the people of God move forward as they listened to God's word, knew the mission, and trusted in God's promises. And today we're going to go deeper. Um, we're going to go deeper into answering the question of how. How do we move forward? How do we move forward together in unity when we are all so different? As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with a guy last week. And he said, Chad, any personality you pick, I'm telling you, we have got it in this church. We are a very diverse range of personalities. And that is awesome. That's what we want in the family of God. But how do we move forward in the spirit of unity with such diversity? And today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 right now. We'll continue in the later verses as we go along. But please uh, stand for the reading of God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. So we're going to continue today talking about moving forward together. And today we're beginning a new series on the book of Ephesians called Learning to Walk. So if you're familiar with the work of Paul in the New Testament, he goes around planting a lot of churches all over Asia, and he's writing these letters to churches. And I love preaching from the epistles because the epistles are very straightforward. This is how you do church. So Paul's writing these um, fledgling churches, 
teaching them how to do church, how to conduct themselves. And here in this church in Ephesus, they've got a problem. Uh, they've got a problem, imagine that. They've got a problem with disunity. There's Jews and Greeks. Historically, they've been apart, but now under this new covenant, they've been brought together. So they're learning how to do church together. And issues have popped up, issues that Paul is now dealing with. So today I want to look a closer look at this passage. We're going to answer two questions. We're going to look at two questions today and three applications. So today it's going to go question one, application, question two, uh, application, application. Two questions, three applications. So I'm going to give you the first question right now. And that is, what is the basis of unity in the church? What is the basis of the unity that, we and I, that, that you and I could have with each other? And we find it in verses 4 through 6. And what you're going to find in verses 4 through 6 is that Paul is using strongly Trinitarian language. He's speaking very much about the Trinity. And if we get to verse 4, he points to the Holy Spirit. And he says there that we are in one body, referring to the universal church. So when you became a Christian, you became part of this one body uh, all around the world that exists. This universal church manifests itself locally here at Sheridan First Baptist, but part of something much larger. All believers everywhere. And then one spirit, um, referring to the Holy Spirit who indwells everyone. And then he says we are called to one hope. We as Christians, we have a singular hope. And that's, that's very hard for us as Americans because we've got it pretty good. Uh, that doesn't mean that tragic things don't happen. And oftentimes when those tragic things do happen, it shatters that illusion that things are okay here when you've lost someone you love. As a matter of fact, life here for some of you, I bet, this morning is pretty crummy. But we have this one hope. This is the hope of heaven. Uh, this is the hope we have that someday we will be with the Lord in heaven for all eternity. That's our future. So we have this one hope. That should be a unifying factor. And then Paul moves to the second person of the Trinity uh, in verse 5. He says we have one Lord. And this is a reference to Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. Then he refers to one faith. This is speaking to the content of what we believe. This is speaking to the gospel. If you're here this morning, you've trusted in the gospel. You've trusted in that saving work that Jesus Christ has done for you. Then you're a Christian. And you've, you're participating uh, in this one faith. Then also, one baptism. Um, this is referring to that water baptism, which is so important. You know, we don't believe that it's necessary for salvation. However, it is commanded of us to be baptized once we're saved. Our baptism is a visible sign of the invisible grace that we've received. It's a visible sign of an invisible grace. It's what we do to proclaim to everyone that, yes, I am participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. So we have this one baptism. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then we get to verse 6 where it says that he's the father of all. And it's important to note that uh, Paul is referring to believers here. 
God is the father of all those who believe. When you believe, you become a child of God. You become a child of the Father. And then it goes on. It says he's over all. God is over all in the sense that he is sovereign over all of our circumstances. And you know, that should bring me such peace. But so often, it doesn't. So often, I get so easily caught up in my circumstances. And I forget that, you know what? God is using my circumstances. He is engineering my circumstances to make me more like Christ. So he is sovereign over all the things that happen. So it's easy. I, I Turn on the TV for five minutes and look at everything that's happening in the world. Get on the Internet and I'll say, you know, society is starting to break down. But, you know, we don't have to have anxiety over that because is, God is over all, sovereignly in control of, world, of the world events. By the way, the degree to which you can believe that, the degree to which you can get that down on the heart level, I believe is the degree to, the degree to which you can really experience peace and joy in this life. Amen. But it's hard to get it down there, and it takes time. It takes time. So God is over all. He's, he's also through all, meaning that not only is God over and above us, by the way, that's called his transcendence, he's also among us and with us, working in us and through us. That's called his eminence. So he's both transcendent and he's eminent. He's among us, working through us. Someone told me once that God milks cows through us. He's always working through us. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are his workmanship created for good works. So he's in us, he, manif he manifests himself in us, and he makes himself known. So this is the basis of unity. This is the answer to the question. We've got one God, one hope, one faith. By the way, the world has a much different sense of unity. The world has a much different basis of unity. See, we're united by all of these unchanging things that Paul's listing out here. It's not so when you get outside the doors of the church. People are united over other things. Politics, socioeconomic status. But see, that's the difference. When you come in the doors of the church, we have a different unifying factor. So it looks different. Um, I'm reminded of, of my time in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I remember I was working in a, in a men's ministry at the time. I'd usually show up about 6, 6.30 in the morning. Um, there were two men that showed up that early. One guy would drive to the church. He had a $250,000 Ferrari. I'm telling you, Dallas was like a different planet. I'd only seen these cars in pictures. But he rolled up to church in that Ferrari, and there was another guy that came. There was another guy that came who had been living under a bridge up until about two weeks before that. He'd been homeless and now living in a shelter. And to see those two guys sitting side by side, I thought, this is a picture of the church. You see, if that wasn't the case, if we couldn't unite over these things, we would have to take the word church off our sign because we'd, we'd be meeting for some other reason. So it's different. Um, 
Now, in addition to this, Paul gives us some really clear life applications on how to live uh, in light of this unity. So this is the basis of unity. That's question one. And now I want to get to the application. And I want to go back to verses one through three. Um, notice the thing that he says first there in verse one. He says he's a prisoner. Uh, it's interesting that Paul talks about hope. And notice it's not about his circumstance. He's not hopeful about getting out of prison. That's not the one hope. So Paul's not interested in changing his current circumstances. He's trusting God with his current circumstances. So hope is not to get out of prison. It's just this further acknowledgement that our hope doesn't rest on current favorable circumstances. And next he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So when the Bible starts talking about your walk, okay, it's, it's referring to how are you conducting your life. Uh, this word peripateo is this Greek word used. It means to walk around. Peri means around. Pateo refers to, you may you know, think pedal or podiatrist talking about your feet. It's your walking around. It's like, how are you walking around through life? How are you doing life? And he's saying walk in a manner worthy of this calling, this calling to salvation. And he's saying, are you walking? Is your life, the way you're conducting it, consistent with the salvation to which you have been called? I remember somebody saying to me, you know, Chad, act your age and not your shoe size. When I was a teenager, somebody said, what a crummy thing to say. Act your age. Now, it just so happened that whenever I was 12, I was wearing a size 12 shoe. I was, that's probably one of the reasons I was not athletic. But, yeah, I'd say, well, I am. I'm acting by they did, they, that didn't go over well. But in any case, um, our, our conduct should be consistent with our calling. Um, so, um, moving on down, we get to these very clear applications. Starting in verse 2, he talks about your attitude. Notice, with all humility and greatness, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So our first application is this. Walk in unity by checking your attitude. And the very first thing he mentions is humility. Oof. Now you may say, look, I'm the most humble guy you'll ever meet. Even though I've got all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't be. Now, wait a second. How are you doing with humility? Are you walking in a humble way? Um, at the time of Paul's writing in Greek culture, it were the slaves that were supposed to be humble. So the Greeks had a real problem when you started talking about this issue of humility. That's probably why Paul would often refer to himself as a slave. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 6.6, 6, uh, he's going to identify himself as a slave. And then there's these tests of humility. And I i got to tell you, when I was asking myself these questions, I wondered how I was doing. Like, do, are you easily angered? Are you easily annoyed with other people? Are you hanging on to a lot of unforgiveness? All of those things point to pride. Not willing to let something go. Thinking more highly of yourself than you should. So that's humility. All of these things, again, feeding our attitude. Next, are you a gentle person? How are you doing with gentleness? 
The opposite of being gentle is being rude and being harsh. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't get angry, but you get angry at the right things. Remember, Jesus was perfectly humble, and uh, he got angry when he went into the temple and saw the money changers. Um, Moses was, was, was the most humble man of the time, and he got angry when he saw the children of Israel not obeying God. So it's not about not getting angry, but it's about getting angry at the right things. Okay? So being angry is not inconsistent with gentleness, but it's about being angry about the right things. Uh, I remember whenever I was working at Dallas Seminary as a recruiter, and I'd go on these long drives. I was in Dallas, Texas. Sometimes I'd drive up to Oklahoma and come back, or West Texas and come back. And I remember I was stopping to return the rental car. And I looked at the, the receipt, and they had mischarged me. And I was tired. And I got mad. I got real mad. And to be honest, I got real loud. And then I looked down at my shirt and it said, Dallas Theological Seminary. <laughs> so we want to be gentle, not rude. I don't think that's what Jesus would have done. You don't have to act that way. There's a way to settle matters without being rude, without being harsh. And then lastly is patience. This is an essential coping skill for doing life. I'd have to say, since I've lived in Sheridan, I have not been in a single traffic jam. That, <laughs> that is a beautiful thing. Because I don't know of anywhere where my patience can be so uh, put to the, the test. Lines to stand in. Traffic to sit in. That's, that's when all the cars back up, you know, in a long ways. It's... it's I love that about Sheridan. I, I love it. I'm sure there's traffic jams, though. Yeah. But praise God, I haven't been in one yet. So we bear with one another. Um, now, if, you know what? If that was all just easy to do, if that was all just natural to do, we wouldn't be commanded to do it. There's a, there's a reason that he's raising this issue, okay? It's because it's not easy. It's not easy to bear with one another in love. Remember those two guys I talked about, the, the really rich guy in the Ferrari and the, the poor guy? Believe me, it wasn't easy for those two guys to be at the same table. The guy that was living under a bridge, when he came to that men's ministry, uh, he had a radio that he wore around his neck. And he turned it up loud. And he sat down. The one guy was trying to read. The guy with the radio, one time he even got up and he left his loud radio on the table and walked away. The, uh, the wealthy guy, he turned down the volume. When, the, when the, the other guy saw him turn down the volume, he came over, he turned the volume back up and walked away again. <laughs> so it doesn't mean it's easy. But just because something's not easy, that doesn't mean that you don't do it. It's not natural. So check your attitude. It's so important. Um, our attitudes are key. As a matter of fact, there's a wonderful quote by Chuck Swindoll. You'll... You'll hear a lot about Chuck Swindoll. I just, I think a lot of him in his ministry. But I want to share this quote with you. Um, this is what Swindoll says about our attitude. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. 
It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company or a church or a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the, the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it, and so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. We don't have much else that we can be in charge of. Sometimes I question if we really have anything that we can really be in charge of. So we've talked now about this basis of unity, and we've found this one application uh, to check our attitudes. And now I want to move on to a second question. Well, how do you preserve unity? We've talked about the basis of it. Well, how do you preserve it? If you got it, how do you keep it? And now we're going to move on to verses uh, 11 through 14, where Paul's going to start a conversation about gifts. And there he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." So Paul here, he lays out these gifts, and he states the purpose of those gifts. And first he calls out the apostles and the prophets. And I want to take a minute just to talk about that, um, because I believe those to be foundational gifts. Uh, foundational gifts meaning that they were to set the foundation for what would be the church. Uh, Paul's going to make that reference in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. When he's talking to these Ephesians and he says, So then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the apostles, the twelve that God had chosen, and there's some more listed in Scripture, as well as the prophets, uh, those who came who, whose primary job was to uh, give the word of God. As a matter of fact, much of what the apostles and the prophets said became the scriptures. And remember that the canon is forming now. The scriptures are forming. Uh, and then the program seems to change. Then in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, notice the but, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So all that to say, these first two gifts, apostles and prophets, I believe to be foundational gifts, gifts that were set there at the beginning for the formation of the church. And then he moves on for the present gifts, evangelists, those who share the gospel, uh, shepherds, you could be considered pastors, and teachers. And these are the gifts that God gives to Christians. But, but, but why? Why did he give these gifts? Then verses 12 and 13, it says, to build up the body of Christ and so that we can all attain the unity of the faith. 
So it brings to maturity. God gives us these gifts so we don't get fooled by a lot of bad doctrines out there because they are always, they are right outside the door, always trying to get in the church. Wrong doctrine, wrong gospel, wrong teaching. So these gifts are for the unity of the faith so that we can become mature and we aren't fooled by these false doctrines out there. And I'm summarizing that. Um, so how then do you preserve unity? It's by using the gifts that God has given you. It's by using your gifts. That's one of the things that keeps us all together. And that brings us to our second application, which is walk in unity by first checking your attitude, second contributing to the body. So how are you contributing to the body? Are you teaching someone? Are you teaching your kids? Are you instructing your family on how to live in Christ? Um, are you speaking to other adults? I know that many of you are part of the, the VOA, the Volunteers of America. By the way, if you're not sure what your gifting is, you know what? Talk to somebody about it. Find a friend that knows you well, and you say, you know what? Do you, how do you see me working? Um, there are spiritual gift tests out there that you can take. I don't think those are as helpful as talking to someone that knows you, though. They can be helpful to help steer you in a certain direction. And you know what? We want to get you plugged in. And if you're not sure how to get plugged in, call us. We'll set up an appointment. We'll talk about it. We're always looking for people. Uh, it takes a lot of people to, to get this church going in the morning. It's amazing. It's like watching a 1,000 people parachuting. They all have to land in this little circle. And by the grace of God, it happens. So check your attitude, contribute to the body, and lastly, I want to look at uh, verses 7 through 10. And by the way, talking about these, these gifts and all coming together, you know, a, an airplane is made up of thousands of parts, and not a one of them can fly. So the parts have to come together, just like the parts of the church have to come together. So lastly, Ephesians uh, verse 4, verses 7 through 10 and I want to look at the, uh, the final application here. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when, we when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And there's a parenthesis. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Simple. What's going on in these verses? If you're like me, I read this and I'm like, what? What? So first of all, notice the conversation changes at, at verse 7. There's a but there. He'd been speaking corporately to everybody, and now he comes and he's saying, now I'm speaking to each of you, okay? To each one of us. And um, when you see a shift like that, you've got to understand what's going on. He starts this conversation on gifts. Verse 7 is pretty straightforward, that we've been given gifts, okay? There's something important to note about that. I'm going to come back to that later. So keep verse 7 in the back of your mind. But then he went, I want to explain briefly what's going on in these other verses. So Paul is summarizing Psalm 68 here in this passage. And... Um, he summarized there to talk about this giving of gifts by Christ. So in verse 8 and verse 9, and then uh, verses 9 and 10 are the commentary on verse 8. Um, he's describing what happened uh, when God left Sinai 
and went to Zion. Okay, so go back to the Old Testament. Think Old Testament for a minute. This is what's going on in Psalm 68. Remember, God met with, the, with Moses on Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments were given. His presence then went into the ark. His presence was then carried. They had the tabernacle, and they moved, and they conquested into the promised land all the way until he ascended on Zion. Now, at this time, when someone had uh, gained a military victory, it was common for gifts to be given. So in Psalm 68, that's the picture of what's going on. Uh, God himself ascending to Mount Zion where he had a victory. The captives then were the Canaanites. So that's what we're talking about in the Old Testament. But now Paul's quoting it in the New Testament. Now, it's the same actor. We're still talking about God, but we're talking about Christ. Christ ascended in the sense that he was resurrected. Before that, he had to descend. He came down. Uh, he came down to earth. He eventually would descend into the grave. And then through his resurrection, he had victory. His enemies, though, were Satan, sin, and death. They're spiritual enemies that he conquered. And now, as a victor, he is giving gifts to men. So that's what's going on in this passage. Okay? And it's, I read, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the meaning of this. Uh, Psalm 68 is one of the most obscure passages in the Psalms. Uh, so it's challenging, but I believe that's what's going on there. And I want to go back to verse 7, because that's where we're going to get our third application. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts that were given were determined by an amount of grace that God himself chose. So inevitably, because we're given these different amounts, people are going to look different. Some people are going to be better at things than other people because God has ordained it to be that way. So when you catch yourself thinking, man, I wish I could pray like them, or man, I wish I could teach like them, or if you're like me and think, man, I wish I could preach like that guy over there, that brings us to this next application to resist comparing yourself to other people. Resist comparing yourself to other people. This is something I constantly have to work on. And there's nothing good going to come out of comparison. You either are going to feel very puffed up, superior, or you're going to feel loathsome. Oh, man, I can't do anything right. Just look at that guy. He's doing it right. God has decided the roles that we're going to play. And uh, my wife back in West Virginia, she counseled people all week that were riddled with anxiety because they were constantly comparing their stuff. That's what's going to happen with comparison. You can expect anxiety to come along uh, not far after. We're not all going to be evangelists like, like Shane. We're not all going to teach like Gary. It's just not going to work that way. I remember in seminary, all of us wanted to preach like Chuck Swindoll. We all, and when that guy would get into the pulpit, it was like magic. He just kept you captivated. And you want to be right there. And I had a professor that knew that, a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks. Have you ever heard of Howard Hendricks? A really, really good Bible teacher. I was blessed to have him my first semester. And he told all of us, we were about to leave his class and go hear Chuck Swindoll preach. And he said, listen. He said, don't any of you think you can do what that man does? 
He said, the world doesn't need another Chuck Swindoll. He said, the world needs you, and you are the only you that the world has. You know what? We don't need another Chad Cowan. We don't need another fill-in-the-blank. We need you because you are the only you there is, and God has foreordained this moment for you to be here right now in this church, in this place, at this time. This is why we need you contributing to the body. So don't compare yourself to somebody else. Nothing good's going to come of that. By the way, social media does not help us in this. If you tune, if you turn in, if you tune into Facebook, you're going to think that everybody's got a perfect life. And they don't. I promise you they don't. So let's walk in unity by checking your attitude contributing to the body, and resisting comparison. Those three things, those are our three applications. In closing, I want to talk about a meeting that was held. And it was held um, by the American Psychological Association. Uh, two psychologists did a bunch of research. And they looked at how in 11 major symphony orchestras, how the different parts of the orchestra looked at other parts. And they found a lot of consensus on this. So, the percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing, but fun-loving. I, I used to be a drummer, by the way, from time to time. I... String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. These are very interesting findings. And then the question it comes up, with these widely divergent personalities and perceptions, how could any orchestra ever come together to make such beautiful music? And it was simple. They said that regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings and biases to the leadership of the conductor. And that's how a church gets along. Our conductor is Christ. Amen. And we subordinate our feelings to him. Please pray with me. Lord, you have woven this beautiful picture called the church. God, sometimes it's hard for us to see. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to see others as you do. God, give us the courage to use our gifts and guide us in this way of diversity. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.